You're listening to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We are also on kzyx.org, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Hi, I'm Bob Bashansky. Welcome to the latest edition of Politics, a Love Story. Until an actual transition takes place at noon on January 20th, 2021, my personal belief is that there will be a lot of turmoil and resistance to the new president and vice president. Doesn't the Constitution set all of this out? Don't we have a pathway through the transition? We do have a constitutional democracy, after all, don't we? We have with us today two gentlemen who have written a terrific new book that helps explain it a bit. They are Aziz Z. Hook, who may join us a little later, and Tom Ginsburg, and their new book is How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. Tom Ginsburg is the Leo Spitz Professor of International Law and Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. He is the author or co-author of several books, including uh, Judicial Reputation. Aziz Z. Hook is the Frank and Bernice J. Greenberg Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. I am very pleased to welcome both to Politics, a Love Story. So, Tom, we'll start with you. You pack a lot into your book, and I have nine pages of notes and quotes. Let's just write in, r- jump right in. This is a book, as you say, provoked by the election of Donald Trump, but it isn't a book about Trump in any direct way. Would you like to... Uh, complete that. Sure. So, yes, we indeed started it uh, in November of 2016. Like many in the country, we were surprised and somewhat shocked by the election of a man with no political experience to run, you know, what was, we often say, greatest nation in the history of the world and all that stuff. And uh, so we sought to understand it. Now, we are um, scholars of uh, constitutions around the world. I work on constitutions in a lot of other countries, Uh, Aziz is a scholar of American constitutional law. And what we wanted to do with this book was to try to understand what was going on in the United States in a global context. You know, we in the United States like to talk about American exceptionalism, as if the trends and forces that affect the rest of the world never touch us. And what we show in the book is that's, in fact, not true at all, that the challenges to our democracy are exactly identical to those going on in many other countries, and presumably then some of the solutions are can also be informed by what happens in other countries as well. So what we're basically talking about is a liberal constitutional democracy and its alternatives. And one of the examples you start off with, uh, and I'm asking this as a question, are you saying that elections in Beijing and Madison, Wisconsin were way too similar in 2016? Were they both democratic? Um, no, no. This to the definition. You might say, and some political scientists do, just say, well, if you have elections, that's good enough. And that obviously is not good enough. Um, you know, that you need uh, all kinds of things around elections in order to make them effective. So one, and actually it's very interesting, at this moment, with Joe Biden having won the presidential election and President Trump not conceding, we see what those things are. You can't really have elections unless you have honest people counting the votes in accordance with the law. 
right? So that requires some kind of bureaucratic structure that's independent of politics. You can't really have elections unless you have a mechanism of dispute resolution. And Trump is going to take many cases to the courts. I haven't seen much in any of those filings, which suggests that they're going to be successful. But, you know, the key point is that you need neutral courts applying the rule of law in order for those elections to work. And, of course, you need the right to speak freely and complain, um, you know, and assemble and all those other things. So you, elections are supported by a structure of other institutions, which I think we take for granted and turn out to be absolutely critical in making democracy actually work. And so that's our, why we call it liberal constitutional democracy. It's got certain core rights and sort of a constitutional structure of non-democratically elected institutions, which actually make the elected ones function. So let me um, set out what you uh, pointed to in the very beginning of the book. Uh, it's your definition of a liberal constitutional democracy, and it has three conceptually separate but functionally intertwined elements. Only when they are all present together does a country warrant the label liberal constitutional democracy. These are, first, a democratic electoral system, most importantly, uh, periodic free and fair elections in which the modal adult can vote, after which the losing side concedes power to the winning side. The second prong comprises the particular liberal rights to speech and association that are closely linked to democracy and practice. That's basically what you just said. And finally, a liberal constitutional democracy works for a level of integrity of law sufficient to allow democratic engagement without fear or coercion. These three must be necessary in practice. Is that basically what you were saying? Yeah, that's basically right. You need elections. We happen to have the definition that the modal adult can vote. So that means no country was really a democracy until women could vote, uh, you know, in the early part of the 20th century. Um, you know, you could also make the case in the United States that we weren't a democracy until uh, the end of Jim Crow, until the, the 1960s, when the Civil Rights Act was passed and the promise of the 14th and 15th Amendment were actually implemented. Uh, that would certainly be a plausible argument. We just take the modal adult because it's simpler to apply across uh, various contexts, right? So we're, we're interested in a definition that is gets to the core of things but allows us to say, to compare meaningfully what's going on in Germany and the United States and Poland and Venezuela and Chile. Uh, and so that's why we take a kind of relatively minimalist definition of what democracy is. Democracy, I'll just tell you, is something that we call in the academy uh, it's an essentially contested concept. That mm. is, there's more than you know, 500 definitions out there uh, of it. And so, you know, you could spend a lot of time debating democracy. We take a pretty simple definition that we think comports with most people's view. And uh, you also point out that the mapping of the democratic recession around the world raises difficult questions of causation. Why has the democratic recession happened and why has it happened now? Right. Well, that is, of course, the, the question which, you know, we really begin to answer. So, you know, I think in the United States, there's a tendency to personalize things around Trump, which is, you know, kind of his brand. But the fact is that, you know, what's been going on has that led to the rise of Trump is as important as him himself. Right. That he's both a symptom of something and also, uh, you know, the cause or an accelerator of it. And that something is what we call the erosion 
of democracy. In the democracy, sort of in, the, in studies of democracy, we tend to think um, that democracy d dies in, you know, in really quick fashion. So even now, today, there's all this talk on my Facebook page about, is there going to be a military coup, uh, you know? Um, and of course, that is how democracies used to die. Uh, but I don't think there's going to be a military coup in the United States. And I don't think uh, that's actually the risk for very many countries anymore. Coups are kind of out of fashion. Communist revolutions don't happen anymore either. Instead, the way democracy dies is through a series of discrete little steps you might call it death by a thousand cuts, which, um, you know, then ultimately make it really hard to identify the precise moment at which the democracy is, you know, is over. So that's what we're describing. It's processes of what we call democratic erosion. And that's happening in many, many countries. Um, and it's a tough thing to fight. Well, you point out that where it was abrupt was in the uh, Reichstag fire in Germany, that put an abrupt end to constitutional rights and the rule of law in Germany. Uh, and then you talk about the slow road, which is this erosion that you're talking about, and you mention a number of countries such as Thailand, Egypt, Turkey, Bangladesh, Mauritania, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, uh, Yemen, Syria, and Libya. That's a lot of countries. Well, yeah, I mean, we try or, we're trying to sort of look at the experience of the whole world to inform our our understanding. You know, Turkey is a pretty good example, I think, um, because that's a country that's always been never really a full democracy. It's always been a little bit on the borderline. But what we've seen since uh, uh, President Erdogan came, rose into the scene, first as mayor and then prime minister, uh, and now as president, has been a steady erosion of those institutions which we say, think are necessary for liberal constitutional democracy to work. So, you know, one of the first things he did was try to put his supporters into the military, which is what he was very afraid of, uh, and then to uh, enter the bureaucracy and the courts. And uh, the courts turned out to be a really critical site for much of this, by the way, because if you can control the courts with loyalists, you can really do a lot. Um, and so, you know, Erdogan slowly built up power in these various institutions. And then... A couple of years ago, there was actually a coup attempt against him, and he used that to arrest anyone who had been an opponent of his and really to, I wouldn't say end democracy completely, but to constrain it so much that the chance of him losing power is really, really minimal. Uh, you point out that the, the, the post-Cold War collapses of uh, these countries, many countries, um, the collapse of democracy, but very few reverses. Why is that? Well, um, yeah, so, you know, I think that there's those countries that, um, you know, saw democracy collapse completely. You know, it's really hard to get out of, obviously, you know, if you have a, a communist takeover, the structures through which to contest power are completely subverted. No one really thinks there's any chance of China democratizing now. Uh, interesting, of course, relative to the United States, are countries which are, you know, do have a democratic structure. And I should say that that's an important, you know, background point. These days, authoritarian regimes don't really look like they used to, right? We tend to think of an authoritarian regime as like China or maybe North Korea, where you have this, you know, crazy supreme leader and a totalitarian state, and is really a relatively small number of such countries. 
most authoritarian regimes um, sort of look democratic. They have elections. They have courts. You know, they even have constitutions full of nice rights. But the implementation of those things is so skewed that uh, you can't really say that they're democratic. And one of the things we're learning in our study of authoritarian regimes is that those semi-democratic institutions are actually really helpful for the um, authoritarian. So if you think about an election, why would authority, why does Vladimir Putin have elections? And the reason is that if there is someone who's able to challenge him, you know, threaten him seriously, well, then he knows who to attack. He also can figure out what messages are resonating with the people. So, for example, if Putin's opponents are raising issues of corruption, well, he knows he has to tamp down on corruption or at least obvious corruption a little bit. So elections, even when they don't have a chance for meaningful change, can provide information. And same with courts and other institutions. And so that's why today's, you know, non-democracies are complex, and it can sometimes be difficult to tell the difference on the surface between a democracy and a non-democracy. Well, you point out that invoking emergencies and suspending the rule of law are often precursors of authoritarian rule. Yeah. Well, this a lot of people thinking about, particularly in the COVID uh, era this year. So um, you mentioned the Reichstag fire in Weimar, Germany. And Weimar, Germany basically ended because of a faked incident that led to a declaration of emergency, which under that constitution eventually allowed Hitler to take all power. So, you know, a lot of constitutions have emergency regimes. And by the way, it's something that's actually um, where the United States is somewhat exceptional. We don't have a constitutional state of emergency. And um, we do. President Trump is often talking about, oh, I'm declaring an emergency. We need to build the wall or I'm declaring an emergency. We need to have steel tariffs or something. And those are found in statutes and ordinary laws. But they don't really mean that you get to suspend all normal government. In many other countries, such as in Germany in the 1930s, emergency rule meant you could suspend normal government and Hitler could rule more or less directly. So that's where, you know, we think that there's a real danger, I suppose, with that model. Uh, but also, you know, the possibility of, I guess you'd say, spurious invocation of emergency by someone who wants to consolidate power. And I think in the case of uh, the United States, I'm glad that the president doesn't have unilateral authority to suspend, you know, the rule of law or something like that, because I think he would probably use it at this point. Hmm. So if Trump had gotten a second term, would we have been, the U.S., that is, would we have been seen as a collapsed democracy would reverse? Well, I don't think a collapsed one. I think we would um, the issue is not collapse so much as erosion. Right. right. And so I think, um, you know, one of the interesting things that we're going to have to study is how we avoided this very near miss in the sense that, you know, the populist leader was rejected at the polls and institutions generally stood up to him. Right. We've not seen secretary of state change the ballots or, you know, courts by really ridiculous arguments. So institutions are still working in the United States. It's really remarkable. And that's because they're really, really old and uh, robust. Now, um, you might, and now I do think it is the case that if Trump had gotten another term, we would have seen continued erosion of our democratic institutions. We've already seen, obviously, erosion in faith in our institutions by virtue of the fact that there are tens of millions of people who think that there was fraud for which there's no actual evidence. So that's a loss of faith. Um, but 
the actual performance of the institutions has been pretty decent, I have to say. But I just worry that four more years of attacks on them, and they might not have been. So, what are... can I jump in? Can I jump in here? Yes. I, 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 with apologies for being late. Oh, go right ahead. I wanted to just add to what Tom said by uh, emphasizing that probably the best, the better way to think about the threat to U.S. democracy in the current moment is is not so much in terms of one person but in terms of the underlying uh, forces or vectors that are straining uh, democracy. And if one steps back from uh, the particular of the president and thinks about the institutions that allow him to come to power and that when, when that power was uh, uh, was misused, um, I think we see that they've become weaker in, in many ways, not stronger over the last four years, and, and are primed to become even weaker in the next five years. I, I would flag, first of all, the, uh, the orientation and uh, structure of the Republican Party. Uh, where, you know, as Tom said, you have 70% of people, of, of members polled, uh, saying that they, they've been fraud in, in the absence of any real evidence thereof. Uh, you have the moves that um, Trump is making to uh, establish his own PAC, uh, which would allow him to exercise a measure of control over the party, particularly at the primary stage. Uh, into the near future, even if he's not uh, president. Um, and, and you have the conspicuous uh, silence of many uh, Republican leaders, not all of them, uh, in, in the face of uh, fraud, uh, utterly baseless allegations of fraud that are plainly designed to delegitimate a lawful democratic election. So those are, those are all, I think, quite worrying factors. The other two worrying factors that I would point to are, are first, the, the, the basic structure of the media environment, and in particular, the dominance uh, of uh, certain, uh, I, I think it's more important to focus upon the cable channels than, than the internet. Um, uh, the, the dominance of cable channels that, that have allowed uh, people to come to beliefs and that have supported beliefs that are plainly false has not uh, changed. Um, and uh, the basic institute, the, the, the kind of institutional reforms within government that could prevent, I think are likely to be off the table with a uh, during a period of divided government, or even in a period in which uh, the Senate is 50-50, which is, which is the, uh, the most democratic-leaning outcome, I think, that's now imaginable. So I, I, I would be, you know, I, I think it's important, as Tom said, mm. to, to think about this as a, as a near-miss. Um, but I also think it's important to recognize that, that the dynamics at the institutional level that produce the near miss are still grinding away in the background. Okay, let me take this opportunity to reintroduce you for those people who are just tuning in. You are listening to Tom Ginsburg and Aziz Huck 
about their book, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. This is Politics, a Love Story, and I'm your host, Bob Bushansky. So what you just said was, uh, yes, there are still the institutions that are backing all of this up, but uh, the Republicans and Trump are marshalling all the forces they can to destroy whatever uh, gains have been made by the Democrats. So this is still a perilous time we're in right now, isn't it? Yeah, I, I wouldn't focus on the on, on the partisan level of contestation. I would focus more on the uh, the way in which fights over political power, which have necessarily a kind of partisan color, can leak over into uh, actions that undermine or, or seriously damage institutions. So, for example, the announcement by the Attorney General, William Barr, uh, uh, either today or late yesterday, that the DOJ would abandon its longstanding policy against uh, election-related criminal investigations prior to the time that the election was certified, um, I think that that is the kind of institutional po policy that, or institutional shift that, you know, A, it's done. It will unlike, it's unlikely to have any kind of public regarding um, repercussions in terms of reputational cost for Barr or for Trump. Um, and once it's done, uh, you've showed that it can be done again and again without much cost. And it's a pretty uh, potent weapon, conceivably. So um, I, I would not focus so much on partisan contestation, which is important and necessary in any democratic uh, system. I would focus upon the way that fights between different parties can lead to the uh, corrosion or damaging of uh, institutional features of the landscape, like an independent press, like a, uh, a prosecutorial function that is not in the hawk of one political party or another, uh, like fair and neutral election administration, right? The damage to those independent institutions is the, is the thing I think that one should really look out for, not so much the fact or, uh, or the presence of partisan con contestation. Well, you talk about uh, a democracy decay, and uh, then you ask the question, how does this happen? And you gave what I thought was a pretty good answer. Uh, there are several steps. The use of constitutional amendments to alter basic governance arrangements. Well, that's not likely to happen now. The elimination of checks that operate between different branches. Yes, that could. The centralization of politicization of executive power as exor exercised through the bureaucracy. The contraction or distortion of a shared public sphere in which liberal rights of speech and association can be exercised and the elimination or suppression of effective partisan political competition and the related prospect of rotation of elected office. Uh, these things are happening. Well, exactly. So we uh, constructed that list sort of inductively by looking at other instances in which democracy had eroded. Those are the steps, if you will, or if you will, the toolkit that putative authoritarians take. And they, if there's, if there's not a particular order necessarily. You can see that if some paths are foreclosed, then authoritarians will work in other areas. Uh, but in many of these, we have seen similar steps in the United States. And we are really 
vulnerable to at least some of them. We're more vulnerable to some than others, but we are vulnerable. So, for example, Aziz just mentioned, you know, the rule of law is what we call this sort of bureaucratic rule of law, and it depends on professional norms among prosecutors, for example, that they aren't just going to punish whoever the president decides are his political enemies. And, of course, we do have those norms and have had them for many, many decades. Um, and so, you know, what, as a formal matter, the president does have the right to hire and fire prosecutors and could simply, uh, you know, exercise that power to put his friends in to bring cases before judges that he has appointed. And then the rule of law is really over. Um, and so that's just one example. Um, you know, the public sphere is quite vulnerable, we've learned in many other countries, to things like audits of, uh, you know, non-governmental organizations or civil society organizations, concentration of ownership of the press among a few people who are connected to uh, those who are powerful. Uh, attacks on universities, our own sphere, is, you know, depends on the ability to pursue research autonomously. And, for example, us not to be afraid that we're somehow going to get, you know, excoriated or fired or lose research money if we wrote the book we did. So, you know, we obviously do have some of these things in the United States. We're very lucky that our media system is not quite as concentrated as in many other countries. But on some of those other dimensions, we really are quite vulnerable. You used four other countries as examples of rulers manipulating the law to reflect their interests. They were Hungary, Poland, Venezuela, and Turkey. And uh, what they're doing is undermining the substance of constitutional democracy, albeit without losing its form. Uh, is that well, not those true? Are the only four countries, to be clear, that uh, these phenomena are observed in. This is this is very much a global phenomena. Uh, in the book, we talk a little bit about uh, jurisdictions, places like India and Japan, uh, Israel. Um, there are many, many instances in which pieces of the more general drift that we describe can be discerned. So, uh, although the four countries you mentioned are the places where this phenomena of uh, democratic backsliding is, is perhaps most obvious and most crisply apparent. Uh, it, is, it is not a, a, an isolated uh, phenomenon. Um, the other thing to, to, to say about that is, is um, you know, it, 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 is the, it, it, it is the case that this is a global phenomenon in a very, very tangible sense. There are uh, networks of organizations, particularly upon the uh, populist right, that meet, uh, that uh, 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 talk across borders, that share ideas. Uh, there's a global dissemination of lawyers, many of whom are U.S. trained at some of our finest law schools, who uh, go back to their home countries and work for a backsliding leader and uh, develop techniques, uh, legal techniques, for undermining democracy. Um, so, and, and obviously, there's a, a global sphere of ideas where um, the, the, the various arguments or, or, or uh, claims are made upon which a backsliding of democracy can be uh, pursued. So um, I, it would be a mistake, I, I think, to, to 
uh, understand this as a as a as a geographically isolated uh, problem. Um, rather, this is something that is gripping the world, albeit to different degrees, at a particular moment in historical time. So, do you think any of this is uh, as a result of charismatic populism, uh, which you say is viewed as democracy's dysfunctional cousin? Yeah, so we distinguish sort of two, what you might call agents of democratic erosion. One is what we call the charismatic populist, and the other is what we call a partisan degradation. I'll just explain each briefly. So, you know, a charismatic populist is someone who, uh, a leader, which we've seen around the world, there seem to be many of them, who claims to uniquely represent the people and have an in, you know, inherent ability to intuit what the people want and to say things like, he alone can save the country. Um, and that person, because of their, you know, they're relying on their charisma, their direct connection with people, tends to be very destructive of and distrustful of any intermediate institutions, such as civil society organizations, you know, uh, religious groups, anything that gets in the way of the leader and the people is to be distrusted and to some degree to be undermined. And so that, that's something we observe around the world. Then we also talk about partisan degradation, which is when a political party basically decides that it's kind of giving up on democracy, um, you know, that there's just, it's unlikely to win in the future. So why should we, why should we maintain the institutions of partisan, um, you know, competition? And, and you know, say those things, you can probably guess what we think about the United States. We seem to have both of them, right? Trump is a just an absolute paradigm of a charismatic populist leader who doesn't like any institutions. And, you know, it's a cult of personality at some level. Uh, and I know many of your listeners are probably Trump supporters. I'm not trying to impugn their judgment, but I'm just saying that the, the, the argument is that somehow as he goes, so do they go. And that, if you think about it, is sort of, it's a bit of an odd argument. It's something a little more akin, I'm sorry to say, to religion than, than a, a political claim, in my view. Now, the partisan point is that you might see a party, a political party, which decides that it no longer wants to abide by competition. And some of the points which Aziz mentioned before, escalating partisan conflict uh, the ability to use the office to punish your political enemies, the overturning of electoral or the undermining of trust in the electoral machinery indicate to me, and vote suppression, I would add, indicate to me that we do have one such party in the United States. Uh, we do, but we also have some people who have broken off, like the Lincoln Project. They recognize that getting rid of Trump and those uh, dead-enders that are supporting him are not good for the Republican Party going forward. And they were willing to vote against Trump and vote against the Republican senator, senatorial candidates because they want to see a, a reemerging new uh, Republican Party that could be balanced against the Democratic Party. Isn't that what you see as well? Well, I think that, that it's far too early to make predictions about the future of the Republican Party. Uh, one of the things that we're seeing emerge uh, out of, uh, it used to be election day, but I'm going to call it election week. Uh, one of the things that emerged out of election week is the scrambling of the uh, 
coalitions that the Republicans and Democrats have put together uh, historically. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as many people have noted, um, you know, two pieces of the Republican coalition uh, that I think cut against the story that, that you were just telling are, are first the rising numbers of particularly Hispanic, but also black men uh, who are who voted Republican in 2020. Um, and second, uh, the evidence that um, uh, the protests associated with BLM over the summer uh, uh, altered or shifted the perspective of suburban voters leading uh, Democrats to lose uh, many down-ticket races, both at the federal and the state level. Now, you know, particularly the second one, we, we're going to have to wait and see a little bit uh, how the actual data from the election pans out. Where, you know, it, it may be premature to assign blame. Um, but I, but I think that neither of those two trends uh, 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 presses toward the idea that the GOP needs to, you know, is under any kind of electoral uh, pressure to reimagine itself. And I think that one can look at the um, un- actually unprecedented number of votes that President Trump received. Right, more than 70 million, more than any successful presidential candidate has ever received, and say that no, the you know the 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 the, the, the president lost the the, the 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 election as he did um, because of uh, the unique circumstance of the coronavirus pandemic, and that absent that unique circumstance, this is a pretty successful way of uh, electioneering. So I'm I'm. I'm not at all sure that uh, in the wake of election week, we're going to see some sort of deep rethinking of the the Republican brand. Well, it would depend upon what happens to Trump and his family. If they get uh, prosecuted, uh, that may change things. And one of the things that you pointed out in your book, it was a paradox of sorts. Trump's style of charismatic populism successfully appealed to voters living in racially isolated communities who have experienced worse health outcomes, lower social mobility, less social capital, and greater reliance on social security income without capital income. Now, uh, they rail in red states that uh, the blue states are getting all the money, but actually it's the blue states giving the money to the red states. Well, that's true. And I I just want to say one thing in response to your prior question is that we both Actually, I mean, my concern, and I think Aziz's concern as well, is not with one party or the other winning here or anything. Our concern is with the health of democracy. And for that, you need a two-party system in which the parties agree to fight within institutions and not to overturn those. And uh, so far, we haven't seen any punishment for trying to overturn those institutions. That's what I think is a a way to say say what he's saying. Now, I don't... um, you know, I don't. I have no view, and I don't want to assert that people, you know, in isolated communities are voting against their self-interest in any fundamental way. I just, I'm unable to say that. It's a, you know, people in an electoral democracy, we assume that people are autonomous to make their own choices, as informed as they are. Um, and, you know, the only thing I will say is there is an open question about whether democracy can really function with widespread misinformation when you have political actors 
who are simply willing to lie uh, without, in, you know, without any sanction. Um, and, you know, and you combine that with the social media, which is not really a very, um, seem to have democratic but enhancing potential, but hasn't really worked out that way. So, uh, you know, that's what I guess I'd say is the, the core structural things more than the, you know, I definitely don't want to say people are not voting their own, you know, perception of their interests. People so make their choices. Let me ask this, uh, this key question. Um, so as of right now, do you think that American democracy will persist? I'll leave that. Well, leave the long pause is telling us. Yes, it is. <laughs> wow. We each want the other to answer that question. Uh, well, well, we're. I think we're. We're. I, we're probably not of one mind here because uh, historically, uh, I have been the more pessimistic. So I'm happy to to go first, and then Tom can correct my uh, my 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 British uh, 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 despondency of spirit that is uh, uh, you know bred from bred from having grown up in the northern coal fields or something like that. Um, I guess I'd make two points. The, the first point is, um, although people talk about the United States as having been a democracy since the first elections in uh, the uh, 1780s and 90s, um, I think that's a deep misconception. Uh, the, the United States excluded um, all but propertied white men uh, from the electorate, uh, from uh, its inception. There were some you know, states where there were small exceptions. New Jersey allowed women to vote, but only for a while. Um, but the United States only effectively allowed a, um, uh, a, a, a population not uh, segregated either by gender or race to vote in national elections from the mid-1960s onwards. So... Um, you know, democracy is not that old a, uh, a blossom in the United States in its fully and properly realized form. And indeed, the, the alternate political regime, uh, which has been called by some political scientists subnational authoritarianism, that characterized in particular the U.S. South from the 1890s to the 1960 can be seen as making a resurgence now, right? One one way of thinking about Trump is that he's the natural or the uh, uh, at least logical uh, fruit of a series of tactical decisions about vote banking that the Republican Party has made since Nixon and Lee Atwater. So um, the the historical pedigree of American democracy, I think, is not. Uh, quite as strong as the framing of the question suggests. Um, you know, and, and then looking forward, um, I see both very strong institutional headwinds that uh, they're not going to destroy democratic institutions per se. What they're going to do is increasingly hollow them out in the way that we've seen over the last four years. Um, and small opportunity for uh, renewal or institutional retrenchment or revival, um, which I, I, you know, I think that this election could have been that, but it, it hasn't been. 
right? The fact that the fact that it will be impossible to enacting measures such as HR one, uh, it will be impossible to enact measures that prevent uh, by statute self dealing by the president, uh, that prevent by statute the misuse of prosecutorial authority or uh, foreign relations authorities by uh, the president or, or those in his or her close circle, right? That is a really important missed opportunity. And then, you know, I think that the, the, the other headwind that I'd very quickly identify is, is um, uh, one of the stories of the last 50 years has been the uh, increasing inequality of American society and the sense that those at the lower end of the income scale have no realistic hope of bettering themselves. And, I, you know, there's an open question as to how that change in the economic landscape affects the political landscape. Um, I, for one, see it as being, there's clearly some kind of connection, but it's not clear to me how strong it is. Um, but I don't see any prospect of that changing. I, I don't see any prospect of, you know, a person who wakes up in Appalachia tomorrow thinking, well, gosh, my children might well be better off than myself, right? And in a world where people don't think that, despair is a really common political currency. And so uh, that leads me to, to, be, to, to, to not anticipate any kind of let up in these problems of democracy in the near term. And I, I, I think one of the reasons for that is that there are civil wars going on within the parties. Uh, the Republicans are having a hard time with some people uh, congratulating uh, Joe and uh, Kamala and uh, the bulk of the Republicans not. But then on the Democratic side, we have the uh, – real hardcore progressives against the moderates, and then Joe Manchin coming out and saying he's not going to vote in favor of eliminating the filibuster or increasing the number of Supreme Court justices. So that stymies right there any major reforms in our political situation. Yeah, you know, I want to step uh, uh, disagree with Aziz a little bit about the direction of American democracy. I tend to be a glass half full person. Let's remember, there you know, more people participated in this election than ever before. Turnout was incredible under very difficult conditions uh, of the virus. And it was an election that was held with no no foreign interference that we know of. The U.S. Cyber Command uh, had a wonderful strategy to prevent that, and that was effective. It was an election that occurred without violence, uh, and that was anticipated on both sides. Here in Chicago, you know, whole streets were boarded up in fear of, you know, people rioting and looting. Uh, and as near as I can tell, the only place that happened was where the, the looters said, do it no matter who won. So um, I think on the Democratic side, there was fear of, you know, a bunch of Trump voters coming in from, you know, Ukiah and Philo or whatever and, and trucks and, uh, uh, you know, and, and harassing people and such. And that didn't happen either. It was an incredibly successful election. And right now, it's true. The president has declined to uh, recognize the results, but he is pursuing the institutional options, which are legally available to him. And those options, I expect, are going to run out. And, of course, the party is getting behind him because he does have this amazing hold on voters. And that is democracy. You might not like the result, but that is, in fact, democracy. And so I tend to be a little more optimistic. I'm, I'm you know, the institutional 
protections may not get enacted, but that sense of, you know, of, you know, institutional balance may be restored just as a matter of necessity. And I, for one, am actually a little optimistic if uh, the Republicans indeed hold the Senate, um, then McConnell will treat Biden with a little more um, grace than he did Obama, who, after all, lacked uh, relevant experience when he took office. Yeah, but why do you think McConnell's going to be nicer to Biden than he was to Obama? He's the enemy. He's a Democrat. Um, and McCon- McConnell is a diehard, absolute, uh, right-ended uh, individual who doesn't want to give an inch to Democrats. That's certainly what he became in the Obama era. And he has uh, done so particularly in, you know, because he has Trump behind him with the voter base. All of these people need Trump support to win elections. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm just going to say it, you know, time, father, father time, as they say, you know, waits for no man. And the party is going to survive in some form. And people like McConnell understand that. Um, and so who knows how he's going to behave? I'm not going to prejudge it. I don't think that these, you know, we're not going to get universal health care or Republican support for uh, uh, packing the court or something like that. But let's face it, that's the internal war you were referring to in the Democratic Party, where maybe uh, the program was, you know, it, it apparently was unachievable and we should have had more realistic goals or they should have had more realistic goals. Well, of course, they'll dispute that, especially uh, AOC. I'm sure she will. And she's going to be on the scene for a while, too. Um, and she's quite an impressive politician as well. So uh, but the country, I will repeat, is a very conservative country. And, uh, you know, my family is from not far from where you're broadcasting from in the Central Valley. Uh, and, you know, uh, we, you know, we're all Americans. And at the end of the day, we need to find people who can unify us. And I'm hoping that Biden can do that. Well, this election was a big surprise to many people because uh, obviously Democrats thought that it was turning slightly to the left of center. And actually what it turned up doing was turning a little bit more right of center. Yeah, I suppose that's right. Although, I, you know, the fact is there is so much power now concentrated in the hands of the presidency. And this is something which Trump has pushed to the very outer limits of what executive authority can do. Um, and, you know, that power is now available to Joe Biden. And so I don't, th- I wouldn't say that it has turned, you know, certainly it's, it's definitely to the left of where it was a week ago or two weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, I expect he's going to be very vigorous in exploiting those executive powers in many, many realms in terms of implementing the law. Now, of course, the courts are um, much more conservative than they were. And many of the new judges are quite hostile to the administrative state. So that's where the battle is going to be, very technical areas of law, such as those that, uh, well, Aziz teaches. Well, you know, I'm not going to breathe a sigh of relief until 1201, January 20th, 2021. There's so much that can happen until then. That sounds sensible. (laughs) Again, I'm optimistic. Uh, You know, once the electorate, December 14th is the critical date. Once the electorate, the, the, the lawsuits that have been filed are, uh, at least the ones I've seen, completely spurious in which, you know, Republicans are asking for relief on the basis of policies that they themselves pushed before the election, such as not allowing 
votes to be counted in Pennsylvania before Election Day. That was a Republican policy. Hmm. So, you know, judges are not going to, you know, federal judges are at the end of the day are federal judges. And I don't expect that they're going to give in to many of these rather silly arguments. Now, the president's going to have to make a choice on December 15th. Um, and that is, does he want to really stick around in the Oval Office on January 21st? Because if he does, he's going to find himself dragged out of the Oval Office by the Secret Service on national television. And, you know, you can complain about that, but that's not very good TV. So I view this whole period as being about, you know, something quite different, which is trying to raise as much money as you can, mobilize money and anger, and create a massive block of people and money that can be deployed to preserve the Trump brand uh, and possibly, you know, spend that money on legal defense, Trump 2024, the campaigns of his children, all of that can be money, campaign money can be used for all of those things. And so that's what I see is going on. But at the end of the day, I'm fairly confident we're going to get through it. Well, there's another uh, possibility and that uh, Donald Trump, when all is uh, said and done, will get on Air Force One and fly down to his buddy Bolsonaro in Brazil, where he can't be extradited. (laughs) Now, by the way, um, and I know Aziz may have comments on this, I don't see a federal prosecution of Trump in the wings. I mean, he's there probably are. I'm not enough of a tax lawyer to know that if there's a tax fraud, I guess that case is ongoing. But there may be some state prosecutions that are going to continue. And, of course, many of those have been ongoing since before he was president. And some of those might be involve uh, criminal behavior. So, you know, uh, there. I, I just don't see the new Biden administration placing the prosecution of Trump as a priority when basically they're trying to ignore him as much as possible um, and sort of hope he goes away. I, I agree with that. I, I think that the tone that the, like the vice president has struck is inconsistent with the idea of moving forward with prosecutions. Uh, it's easy to see prosecutions backfiring uh, politically by strengthening Trump's hold on the Republican Party and by arousing uh, even greater levels of uh, anger on the far, far right. Um, you know, at the same time, part of the reason that, uh, you know, what another context is called transitional justice is urged is to establish uh, beyond doubt uh, a historical record of uh, what has happened. Uh, and how, let's say, power has been misused and, and human interests uh, suborned or uh, compromised. And one can one can imagine, um, you know, in in many different domains. For example, the the uh, in in the immigration context, in the context of uh, how prosecutorial uh, powers have been used, um, in the context of the administration's early response to the. COVID-19 pandemic, that that even if there's not a call or or even if there's not either the uh, desire for or the the, uh, functional need for punishment, you would still see uh, some efforts being uh, devoted to creating unimpeachable historical records of the misdeeds or uh, negligence uh, of the prior administration. Um, I think that what's much more likely to happen is is on the financial front, where um, you know first 
the you know the uh, President Trump faces exceedingly large liabilities, both at the federal and the state level. Um, and at the state level, particularly in New York, there are um, uh, at least, uh, or at least the, the filings made by Cyrus Vance suggest there are um, numerous incidences of uh, tax violations that could rise to criminal liability. Um, and, you know, I think that what will be interesting to see is, is or, or what I think we, we, we need to, to, to be watching out for is, you know, whether um, Trump not, doesn't face a criminal justice uh, nemesis, but faces a financial nemesis, right? Do the accrued debts and uh, obligations and financial missteps of the past finally catch up? Or does he find a way to monetize whatever opportunities he thinks are available to him after leaving the Oval Office, be it starting his own TV network, uh, you know, making a deal to, uh, well, I can't imagine him writing a book, but um, <laughs> having somebody else write a book for him, uh, or uh, whether it be through kind of uh, the siphoning off of resources that are going to, uh, uh, you know, a, a pack that is putatively about the party. Well, it's uh, yet to be seen, uh, but there's also the Attorney General of New York who has filed charges as well, and she'll be gathering information. And what you were talking about earlier, uh, I think it was Eric Swalwell who suggested a presidential commission to at least, as you were saying, uh, catalog all of the uh, misdeeds done by various members of the Trump administration, not necessarily to prosecute them, but to at least have a record. I think I agree with what you said about that. That would seem to be a good thing because there were so many things that we don't know about that were going on that were probably illegal. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, have, I don't have any access to you know, what the Biden administration is planning, uh, but I do, I do hope that something of that kind is in the works. Um, you know, and I, I think, I think that, that it's, that the importance of that goes to this, to a broader question of, you know, how, how do we improve the public uh, political culture of the United States? So that um, particularly with facts about which no reasonable person ought to uh, have a different view of, um, that we, you know, that we're all on the same page, right? So I'm, I'm thinking of things that range from, um, you know, the the public health benefits of masking to the, you know, the existence of electoral fraud in uh, in Georgia or in Pennsylvania, for which, again, I'll, I'll reiterate, there there is literally no evidence. No, there doesn't seem to be, but these suits, uh, for instance, even the one today that's... Uh, uh, the ACA, the, the Supreme Court, is listening to that, and uh, they may knock down the Affordable Care Act, uh, affecting millions and millions of U.S. citizens. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait to see what happens with that. And those were frivolous suits brought about, about by 16 uh, Republican attorneys general. Well, I would distinguish the, ele the, ele the election-related suits where, where the, the fundamental problem is the absence of any, uh, literally any factual basis uh, upon which to allege fraud and the assertion in, in the teeth of the facts that um, evidence of, 
of outcome determinative fraud exists, right? Which which I take to be a, a, an assertion that's, that, that that cannot be made in good faith. Um, I think that's quite different from the lawsuits that are being pursued against the Affordable Care Act, which, you know, look, no matter what you think of the merits, and and I I'm you know I, I agree that the, at the end of the day that those suits should not prevail. Um, there, it's arguments made by people in good faith, based upon existing legal materials, and you know even in the, the Texas v. California case. Um, while I don't think that that argument should succeed, I also don't think that it's an argument that's beyond the realm of plausible, uh, beyond the realm of claims that an attorney could make in court without being sanctioned. So I just think that they're completely different. Um, I th- and I think I think that running together the election-related suits with the the Affordable Care Act uh, suit is 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 really problematic. They're, the, the the kind of errors being made in those two cases are categorically distinct from each other. Hmm. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time, and um, I wanted to uh, just read a, a small little thing that you have near the end of your book. Uh, there's a story, probably a, an apocryphal but still enlightening story, that Benjamin Franklin, upon leaving the Philadelphia Convention and being asked what it had done, explained its product as a republic if you can keep it. And isn't that basically where we're at at this moment? Well, I think a lot of people would agree. The basic idea is, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we have our Constitution. We all, you know, love it, thinks it, think it works well. That's contestable, of course. But at the end of the day, the only thing which saves democracy is democracy itself. It's, it requires the people to know what's in the Constitution, actually, to, uh, you know, be committed to democratic processes, which partly involves recognizing that the other guy might disagree with you, but is not fundamentally evil and it's something to be eradicated, uh, and so on. And so, you know, if that doesn't live in the hearts of the people, we're in big trouble. Mm. Well, I, I want to thank you both for participating in this. This was, uh, from my perspective, a terrific book. I learned a lot, and I, I'm glad that we were able to have this dialogue. So uh, thank you, Aziz Hook and Tom Ginsberg, for participating uh in reading, uh, telling us about your book, uh, How to Save a Constitutional Democracy. So we have a lot of good shows coming up, and uh, I think that you'll uh, enjoy them as we go along. And right now, I'd like to uh, say that the next show on air is going to be The Wondrous World of Music with Gordon Black. And I want to thank him for being such a good friend of this show because he has allowed us to go over at times in the past. And I, I am remiss in not necessarily pointing out that his show follows this show. So I'm doing it right now. Thank you very much for listening and see you next time.